Amen. Thank you, Joe. Again, if you have a copy of God's Word, look with me to our passage found in the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 18. The book of Acts chapter 18. And we'll begin reading with verse 1 and, and read through verse 4 and then jump down to verse 24. And while you're turning there, we're doing a series of messages, and it's about stewardship. We do it every January, about using what God has given to us. We are managers. Everything God has given to us, we're accountable to God to manage. But there's one area that many times we don't think about, and that's what I want to talk about today. And the title is, Who is in Your Future? So the book of Acts, chapter 18, beginning with verse 1, is talking about the Apostle Paul. Luke writes, After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by the trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now look down at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and been fervent in spirit. And he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, today as we open your word, Father, as we look at this text, we pray that you'll help us. The Father will ask the question, who's in our future? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ed Kimball, tall 40-year-old salesman from in McGivery Dry Goods Store, also adult Sunday school teacher, young adult Sunday school teacher of the Mount Vernon Congregational Church of Boston, received a shock when he went to the doctor. The doctor informed him that he was dying. And Kimball looked at his life, and he wanted to make a difference. And he was, like I said, he was a Sunday school teacher of young adults, young you know, teenagers. And so he decided he was going to share faith with each one individually. He wanted to be sure that before he died, he had an opportunity to tell them personally about Jesus Christ. And that was his goal. In fact, it scared him, but that was his goal. And so he went around to all the different students to talk to them. And on April 21st, 1855, he went to a, a shoe store where one of his students worked. And Kimball was so scared, he said later, he walked by three times before he went inside. He talked to the young man and said, let's go to the back. I need to talk to you about something important. They went to the back. He, he told him about Jesus. And the young man gave his life to Christ that day. The young man's name was Dwight L. Moody. If you don't know Dwight L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody was one of the greatest evangelists in history. He changed the United States, and he changed Great Britain through his preaching. 
Thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to know Christ through his preaching, and he changed both the United States and England. Once he was in England, he was preaching, and there was a preacher listening to him by the name of Frederick B. Meyer. Frederick B. Meyer was, was a pastor, a preacher there, and he was getting discouraged about the ministry, and he heard Dwight O. Moody preach, and he thought, my goodness, this is how preaching should be, and he rededicated his life to become a better preacher. And we know today that F.B. Myers, what they call him, became one of the greatest preachers of his generation. And F.B. Meyer came to the United States, and he was preaching because he was so popular. He began to preach around the country in the United States, and one day he was preaching at Furman University, and there was a young man there who thought he was called to the ministry, decided to give up the ministry, and he heard F.B. Meyer preach, and he said his soul became on fire, and he rededicated his life and said, I am going to go into the ministry. It renewed his calling. His name was R.G. Lee. He became the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, one of the greatest Southern Baptist preachers of all time. Then F.B. Meyer went to New England. He was preaching there, and during the service, uh, this young man heard him caught on fire for God, and he decided he was going to preach it. He began to preach revival services all across New England, and people flocked to hear this young man. And in fact, they were so crowded, you couldn't even get people in. That man was J. Wilbur Chapman, and toward the end of his life, he decided that he needed someone to take his ministry, and he needed to invest in his life in someone. And so he chose this young convert, a, a former baseball player, and said, let me teach you about what I do. And that young man was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday did revivals across the United States. In fact, even today, they study his revival services. Billy Sunday was in Charlotte, and he was preaching. There was a group of men there listening to Billy Sunday, and they said, you know, we need this across America. We need a revival in the United States. And so they went back to their, uh, their home, and they began to pray that God would send a revival. And they said, why don't we bring in an evangelist here? And so they looked around. They, they contacted a man in Louisville, Kentucky named Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham came and did a revival there in a tent. And on the back row one night, this lanky teenager came forward, and he gave his life to Christ. That teenager's name was Billy Graham. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people gave their life to Christ. All of this took place because a Sunday school teacher wanted to make a difference and decided to tell the gospel message to people. He wanted to be sure that after he was gone, there would be someone carrying on the work. One person decided to give someone what God had given to him, and it caused a chain reaction through history. As I said, in, in stewardship, it's all about what God has given to us and how we use it. And usually, we think of time, we think of talent, we think of treasure, we think of testimony. But there's something we need to think about, and that is who's going to be in our future. Who are you preparing for the future? Who are you investing in for the future? Now, you think about it. God has given to us all these wonderful gifts and lessons. God has given us lessons in life that we can inspire others. God has taught each of us through individual storms and crises and problems and pain, and he has taught us those lessons so that we can help other people. God has taught us lessons about his word, about his will, about his ways, that we can help other people. God has given to us these opportunities so that we can invest in others, and it's called discipleship. 
to invest in others for the future. So who's in your future? Who is it that you're investing in their life that they can have a future? Who is in your life that you're investing in them to make a difference? Who are you mentoring? Who are you teaching? Who have you encouraged? Who have you exhorted? Who have you energized for the future? You know, while I was writing this message, I I thought about all the people in my life that have helped me. And the names are long. I mean, the names go on forever. I think about Harper and Gloria. Harper and Gloria was a couple in our first church, and they helped me understand what a pastor was. Uh, When I made a mistake, and let me tell you, I made a lot of them. They came alongside Eileen and I and told us and talked to us and, and helped us to, to understand what to do. They continued to encourage me, not to get discouraged. They continued to encourage me. Or I think about EC. EC was in my second church. EC was a, a very successful businessman. He was the one who came alongside me to, to teach and encourage me about business practices. He's the one who came alongside to help me understand business decisions and executive decisions of the church. I think about Rick Lance. Rick Lance, who is now the executive director of the Alabama State Convention. When I was in college, I met Rick, and, and I was called to the ministry. I, I talked to Rick. Then all of a sudden, he began to write me letters to encourage me, and he would contact me. And we would talk about the ministry, and he's been my mentor even to today. Or I think about Cecil Randall, who was Eileen's pastor, and then he, he became a professor at the New Orleans Seminary. And I literally spent hours and hours and hours with him as he taught me how to be a pastor, how to do funerals, how to do weddings, how to do counseling, how to do time management. I think of all these people who invested in me. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I invest in others. That's why every month I spend time with pastors across the Southeast. That's why I spend every week call, calling people and, and, and contacting them to encourage them because people invested in me and I want to invest in others. Good stewards invest in others for the future. Now, in the Bible, we have many examples of investing in someone's life, but there's a couple who's mentioned six times in four different books. Six times in four different books. They're found in Acts chapter 18. Then we find them also in Romans chapter 16 when Paul sends them the greetings and he called them my co workers in the ministry. And then we find them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 19, where Paul is commending them because the church was meeting in their home. And then we find them in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 19, where Paul is sending a, a greeting to Timothy, and he said, be sure you say hello to those who are ministering. He talked to them. Every time they're mentioned in the Bible, they are encouraging someone, helping someone, or traveling to help someone. And their names are Priscilla and Aquila. Now, I know. They sound like a couple from a Dr. Seuss book, okay? Priscilla and Aquila and the vanilla gorilla like to drink sarsaparilla on the way to Manila. I get it. That's not original. I had to use that, though. I saw that. But they do sound like a, a, a character. But they're an incredible couple. In our text, we're introduced to them. We find the Apostle Paul, he leaves Athens, goes to Corinth. Let me tell you, Corinth was a pagan, pagan, evil city. Corinth made Vegas look like a ladies' tea party. If you came from Corinth, they assume you were immoral. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And this is where Paul was. And he's in Corinth doing ministry, establishing a church. And then Priscilla and Aquila comes there. Now, interesting, by the way, they're mentioned Two times as, as uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and four times as Priscilla and Aquila. You say, what's the difference? 
For some, they said there's no difference at all. But in Greek language, you always mention the husband first. And in the Greek language, you always put the most important person first. So Peter is always the first disciple. Judas is always the last disciple. But here's a couple. They interchange. So what's the reason? It's probably because they are both so talented that they're mentioning to them, saying that they are using, both of them are using their talents for God. So here's Paul. He's in Corinth. Here's come Priscilla and Aquila. They've been run out of Rome because the emperor Claudius ran out the Jews. And the Bible says that Aquila was Jewish. Now, he was a Christian, but he was of Jewish descent. And so he left to go to Corinth. Now, it doesn't say Priscilla was Jewish, and many scholars believe that she was Gentile. In fact, many scholars believe she came from a very elite family. And if that's the case, probably her family disowned her. But here they are, they're together, they come to Corinth, and Aquila is a tent maker like Paul, and so they work together, and you can imagine while they're working together, Paul is investing himself in his life. Then Paul goes away, and then we find in verse 24, another character that we're introduced to. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Paul invested in them, and now they're about to invest in someone else. The greatest event in your life is not what you do, but what you are doing as you're pouring your life into someone else's. Let me say that again. The greatest event in your life is not what you do, but what you are doing as you're pouring your life into someone else. We spend so much of our time working on things that are not going to last. Buildings don't last. Awards don't last. Businesses don't last. Our physical bodies don't last. But pouring your life into someone else's life in the name of Christ, that will last. This morning, I ask a simple question. How do you invest in someone else? How do you invest in someone? Who's in your future? How do you invest in them? Let's look at it. Number one, we need to give them grace and not criticism. We need to give them grace and not criticism. Today, our world is more critical, more complaining, and more critiquing than probably any time in history. They say about 90% of social media is criticism tearing people down. In fact, that's, it's constructed that way. One pastor said this, people on social media are criticizing family members, businesses, customers, churches, pastors, politicians, police, teachers, doctors, and anyone else they see. And the tearing down of people and institutions will never help. It only tears us down and it destroys our witness for Christ. Why are people doing this? Why are we so critical? Listen, listen, when someone is very critical, it's one of three things. They either, is a sign of anger, is a sign of low self-esteem, or they don't have control in their life. Maybe a combination, but I promise you those three things. The, that critical person, always being critical, anger, have no self-control, or low self-esteem. We have enough criticism in our world. We don't need to add to it. I mean, the Bible says that we are to be encouraging, uplifting. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so in verse 24, we're introduced to Apollos. Now, Luke tells us a lot about this man. 
Look what it says, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos and an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. First of all, he tells us he was an orator. He was an orator. That, that word eloquent, I mean, that means someone who is trained in rhetoric. He came from Alexandria. Alexandria was known for scholars. If you were a philosopher, you were a teacher, you went to Alexandria. All the great scholars would go there. All the great philosophers would go there. This man was taught by the very best. He was trained in rhetoric. He was not only a gifted speaker, he was a trained speaker. He was a trained orator. Not only that, it says he was proficient in Scripture. Some translations use the word mighty in Scripture. That word mighty, that word proficient means to take something and apply it. So here's Apollos. He can take the Scripture and he can apply it to your life, and he was great at doing it. And the word Scripture means the Old Testament, from, from Genesis to Malachi. Also, it says he was passionate. That was in verse 25. It says being fervent in spirit. That has the idea of, of had a lot of energy, had a lot of passion for what he was doing. He was also bold, verse 26, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. In other words, he didn't care what he was going to say as long as it was the truth. He went to the synagogue and he confronted people with the word, with, with the Old Testament to show them something. He was theological. Look at verse 25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit and was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. The Bible says he was accurate in what he was talking about. So from Genesis to Malachi, he was accurate. And he was talking to them about Jesus. But here's the problem. He only knew about John the Baptist's teaching. That's what it says, verse 25. What does that mean? Well, from John the Baptist, he knew the Messiah was coming. He knew Jesus was the Lamb of God, and that's it. Apollos wasn't saved yet because John the Baptist had died before Jesus died on the cross, was buried and resurrected. Apollos didn't know that part of the story. So he was teaching about Jesus. So here you have this bold, dynamic theologian speaking accurately what he knew about but missing a big, big portion of it. So what did Priscilla and Aquila do? Verse 26. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They heard him speak and they pulled him aside. Now, don't, don't misunderstand this. It's not saying they pulled him aside in the corner to, to talk to him. That Greek word means they invited him to their house. They went up to Apollos and said... Why don't you come eat with us? They opened their home, and they brought him in, and it said they began to teach him, began to show him. They took him aside. Now, they were not smarter than, than Apollos. They were not educated like Apollos, but they, they knew some things he didn't know, and by grace, they taught him. They taught him about the miracles of Jesus. They taught him about the teachings of Jesus. They taught him about the death and burial of Jesus. They taught about the resurrection of Jesus in their home. They didn't pull him aside and say, you idiot. How dare you? Man, you're dangerous. You shouldn't be doing this. You should quit preaching. How dare you? Just go away. No. They didn't post on social media to embarrass him, to tell people to stay away from him. No. They invited him to their home. 
by grace. To have grace, we need to focus on the relationship. If you're going to invest in someone's life, it's called mentoring. It's based on relationships. And you only have a relationship with it's grace. The day of, of saying, sit down, shut up, and do what I say, or gone, people are not going to do that anymore. You've got to build a relationship with them and give them grace. If you're going to build up someone, it begins there. We need to give them grace and not criticism. Number two, we need to give them encouragement and not discouragement. We need to give them encouragement and not discouragement. Priscilla and Aquila encouraged Apollos, but they didn't discourage him. In fact, we know that because the whole church encouraged him. Look what it says in, in verse 27. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him. They encouraged him. Through encouragement, he blossomed. Discouragement does not help people grow. If people are discouraged, they're not going to grow. Parents, let me talk to you for a moment. You discourage your child, they're not going to grow. You tell them they're worthless, they can't do anything, they're, or they'll never be loved, they're not going to grow. Now, I'm not saying don't, don't discipline them. I'm not saying, uh, you know, don't correct them. We need to do that. But you need to encourage them. In the movie Encanto, the, Luisa is a sister. She has all this physical strength, and she sings a song. And in the song, she says, who am I if I can't carry it all? In other words, she said, look, I have all this strength, but what if I can't? Where's my encouragement? Later on, we find out that none of the family was getting encouragement. In fact, one even said, we'll never satisfy you. We'll never be good enough for you. People are hungry for encouragement. In the Greek language, there are three words for encourage, and this one means to push forward. This is the idea. They encourage him by pushing him forward to get out of his comfort zone, to take a risk. That's why he left. Take a risk. Do something. We need to encourage people to get out of their comfort zone. And everyone needs encouragement. Every one of us, we, we, we want encouraging word, encouraging note, encouraging text, encouraging email. We want encouragement from our parents. We want encouragement from our spouses. We want encouragement from our friends. Because we are drowning in the negative voices of our past that's screaming at us, saying, you can't do it. You're not worthy. You're going to mess up. We all need encouragement. The Library of Congress, they hold the content of Abraham Lincoln's pocket the night he was assassinated. On April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. This is what he was carrying. Two pairs of spectacles, a lens polisher, a pocket knife, a watch fob, a linen handkerchief, a brown leather wallet containing a $5 Confederate note. I have no idea about that one. And eight newspaper clippings which were favorable to the president. Here's what scholars believe. Lincoln, most people don't know this. Lincoln was the most criticized president of history. The North didn't like him. The South didn't like him. His party didn't like him. The opposing party didn't like him. No one liked him. The newspaper hated him. Most scholars believe he wanted encouragement, so he found eight articles of which some were positive, and he would read those for encouragement. We need to encourage people. Because if we don't, 
They'll never grow. Third, we need to give them hope, not despair. We need to give them hope, not despair. Priscilla and Aquila gave Apollos hope. You say, how do you know? Well, look at verse 27. They've been working with him. What does he do? He wanted to cross to Achaia. The brethren encouraged him. He wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And look what happens. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrated by the Scripture that Jesus was the Christ. You see what they said here? He went and he helped them. Why? Because they helped him. Now he is helping others. And not only that, he is showing that Jesus was the Christ. No longer is he talking about Jesus, no information about Jesus. He is telling them Jesus is the Christ. So when you invest in someone, they will invest in others. It's a principle. I promise you, when you invest in others, they will want to help others too, not impress others. When you invest in others, they will want to help other people too, not impress others. So when we invest in someone, what's going to happen, they're going to invest in someone else. And we invest in people, we give them hope. And that hope is passed to others. A few years ago, Amiro Ferretino died. Now, most of you, I promise you, most of you never heard of him. But you know his work. In 1969, Newsweek called him the Picasso of spots and strobes. He was the Picasso of lighting. He is the person that is credited for transforming television lighting from an engineer mindset to an art form. He is the one, he lighted concert for Neil Diamond, Barbara Streisand, and Frank Sinatra. He, he, he was the one who lighted, in 1964, the first heavyweight fight on television between Cassius Clay and Sonny Liston. He was the advisor to every president on lighting from Dwight Eisenhower to Bill Clinton. He supervised the lighting so that they would always look their best. He designed it for them personally. He was the one that across America, if you wanted to open something up, they called him. And so he went in major production, a lot of museum, a lot of projects. He did the lighting for the Democrat, the Republican convention. He was the one. If, if you've ever been to Epcot, you've seen his lighting. He's the one that designed all the lighting of all the pavilions at Epcot. He's also did all the lighting at Disney World. So you've seen his work. Well, he was born in Brooklyn in 1928. When he was a child, he walked past the Radio City Music Hall, and the lights amazed him. He was mesmerized by the lights, and he said, I want to learn how to do this. As a child, this is his goal. I want to do lighting. And so he began to learn everything he could about lighting. He went to the library, began to read books. He went to bookstores, anything about lighting. He talked to everyone. He wanted to be known as the person that did the best for lighting. In fact, he was offered a scholarship at the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh in lighting. But a few months before he graduated high school, he's walking down the road, and he found an empty shell casing, and he decided to make it into a keychain. What he didn't know, it was a live round. And so with a soldering iron, it exploded in his face, and he lost an eye. He went into a pity party. At the hospital, he thought, all my life, all I wanted to do was do lighting. Now I only have one eye. His drama teacher came. Lawrence Druss, she came in, and she asked him how he was doing. She held his hand, and he said, you always told me 
that I could be the best lighting designer ever. You told me I could be the best lighting designer ever. And Florence said, well, I got to modify that. You're going to be the best one-eye lighting designer ever. He said later, that one sentence changed his life. Because he said, I can do that. I can do that. He quit his pity party and began investing his life again in his dream. One sentence gave him hope. One sentence, not despair. One sentence that someone gave him changed his life. 1964, Robert Rosenthal did an experiment. They brought in three teachers, and they told the teachers in San Francisco, you're the best teachers we have. We're going to give to you 90 students, high IQ students. We want you to work with them because, because they're high IQ, they don't do well on tests, or they're bored in class. So we want you to work with them individually. Now, you can't tell them they have a high IQ because we don't want them to get, you know, prideful and we don't want you to tell the parents but we trust you that you can bring out the best in these kids at the end of the year they tested the kids they grew in 20 to 30 percent higher grades 20 to 30 percent they brought the teachers back in they said you did great 20 to 30 percent increase but we got to tell you something those kids don't have high IQs we chose them at random they were just average kids but you work with them, and because you work with them, they increase in their grades 20 to 30 percent. You did a great job. And then they said, Oh, by the way, you're not the best teachers we have. We chose you at random, you're the middle or the low end of our teachers. But look what you did. What happened? Someone believed in them. Someone encouraged them. Someone gave them hope. And the teachers applied themselves and they passed it along to the kids. If you can make a difference in the secular world, how much more can we make a difference in the spiritual world? Who's in your future? Who are you investing in to, to give them hope, to lead them to Christ, to help them grow in Christ, to use their talents, their gifts for Christ? Who's in your future? Who are you giving grace to? But you can't give grace unless you have it. If you've never given your life to Christ, that's where you begin today. By saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. And I know that Jesus died for me on that cross 2,000 years ago. And he was buried and rose on the third day. And I give him everything today. I give you my life, Lord. If you've never done that, will you do that this morning? If you're online, you want to make this decision, just text us the word today at 270-398-5005. And a minister will call you today. But if you're here in person, as we begin singing, just come to the front. Talk to me or one of the ministers. Or after the service, meet one of us at the Connection Center. But it begins today by giving your life to Christ. Would you stand and bow your heads? Our Father in heaven.
Let us invest in something that will last. And it begins, Father, with giving our life to you. Father, if there's anyone who here today or listening online who's never given their life to you in a personal way, let today be the day. But Father, for the rest of us, let us be committed to invest our lives in someone else. Let us ask that question, who's in our future? Father, show us that person. And Father, if we don't know that person, Father, reveal a person to us this year that we can make a difference. In Jesus' name, amen.